0: BLOB TALK RADIO Well, good evening, good evening, good evening Listeners, good evening, good Evening time where you are. If it's afternoon where you are, good evening. And if it's morning time, good morning wherever you are. We want to thank you for listening to us. We are happy to have with us our faithful follower, Dr. Jeffrey Berry, who's going to bring us, I will say, volume two of the biography of Hubert Harrison. But before we go to our guest, let me just remind you our phone call-in number is 515-605-9812. Keep that number, in because if you have a question or comment, by all means, go right ahead. Dr. Perry will be here to answer your questions. But with that, let's turn around and go to Dr. Perry. Good afternoon or good evening there, Dr. Perry. How are you? Fine. Thank you,
1: Etienne, and good evening to you.
0: So thank you. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your background, please. How you got into doing this? This uh... Uh,
1: yeah. Well, I'm retired now. I'm 74 years old, but uh, <laughs> I uh, and I worked 33 years in the postal service. I'm a product of the 60s, and I uh, wanted to see serious social change. And yeah. I thought uh, it was important to go into workplace and work with others, working people, to uh, affect those changes. But while I was in working in the post office, I went to graduate school. I did undergraduate, and then I went to graduate school, and I wound up getting a Ph.D. Um, Oh, good. Yeah, my Ph.D. topic was Hubert Harrison, and that was at Columbia University Press uh, under two outstanding scholars, Nathan Huggins, who was at Columbia and then went up to Harvard uh, before he died, unfortunately very young, and uh, Hollis Lynch, who's from Tobago and Trinidad, And, um, wrote on Blyden and also on, um, Garvey and Garveyism, you know, so I had excellent, excellent
0: advisors for
1: my dissertation. And, um, uh, very briefly, I was just, I was working on why efforts in the U.S. for radical social change were not more successful. And, uh, I was convinced after, you know, a period of time that white supremacy was the principal roadblock, the principal obstruction. So I started looking at all the early groups from the turn of the 20th century to see how they had dealt with that issue. Not very well, most of them, right? And um, in the course of that, I came across three articles, one by J.A. Rogers in World's Great Men of Color. J.A. Rogers Uh is from Jamaica. One by Richard B. Moore, who's from Barbados, um, in the Encyclopedia of the American Negro, I believe it was. And uh, one by Philip Foner, who's a labor historian of sorts, and it was on uh, uh, the um, uh, Socialism in the Negro, some such title like that. And he had a chapter on Harrison. So these three people all had very interesting ch- and insightful chapters on Harrison. So I said, who is this guy? I said to myself, Mm -hmm. and I went to the Schomburg Center, and Arturo Alfonso Schomburg uh, and Harrison were two of the people who helped build what is now the premier uh, research center in the U.S. uh, in black studies. It was named after Schomburg, Harrison.com. And I, I found two books by Harrison online, and uh, The Negro in the Nation, written in 1917, and When Africa Wakes, The Inside Story of the Stirrings and Strivings of the New Negro in the Western World, written in 1920. Oh. And I read them, and I just was taken aback because of all those early 20th century thinkers, I thought he was the clearest of all the thinkers I came across, particularly on key issues such as racism was not innate, and it was not only not in the interest of black people, but it was not in the interest of poor and laboring white people. You know, it served mm-hmm. the interest of the ruling class, yes. And he was very clear on that. So I started, I started writing a few chapters on him. And then along the way, I, um, I started reaching out and sending letters all over. And um, I, uh, you could send the same letter, just change the address, and it would go to a different person. And I sent about 35 letters out. And Ms. Lindquist uh, from the Enid Ball Library um, oh, yes. wrote back to me. Yep, you know that library. And she wrote back to me. <laughs> and, she said, yeah. and she said, Jeff, I'm related to the family. And she gave me contact <laughs> information.
0: And, Come
1: on. Uh, the son was living in, in uh, William was living on 150th Street Manhattan, and Ada was living in Yonkers. So I arranged oh. to meet them, and I brought some two or three chapters I had written, and I left it with them. And, you know, we, we just kind of got to know each other, came back and talked yes. a little more. And then on the third visit, they took me into the front of William's apartment where they had preserved all of Hubert Harrison's papers. Yeah. Uh, they may have moved once yeah. or twice since 1927, but they had preserved all his papers there, mostly in a closet and in the uh, top half of the closet and things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, they told me to take them and do with them what I needed to do. So I felt a great responsibility. I came back <laughs> and uh, I picked them up. I became an archivist overnight. I'd work every day after work and for years, I mean, I was doing this and, Uh, By 1986, I had finished my dissertation. As a matter of fact, uh, Professors Huggins and Lynch said, Jeff, cut it short because I had written 800 pages on Harrison. And um, so I did. And I had some outstanding readers on my orals committee, um, including Charles Hamilton, who co-authored the book with Stokely Carmichael. I think it's Black Power was the book. Um, Elliot Skinner who uh, was an ambassador uh, in Africa, uh, but also a scholar, and Eric Foner, a leading uh, historian. And um, I pass the orals, and I go out to have dinner with Harrison's 75-year-old daughter, Ada. And at that time, she reaches down into her bag, and she goes, here, Jeff. And she gives me Hubert <laughs> Harrison's diary. I had what? no idea it existed. And I, um, I quickly became an archivist overnight. I got mylar acid-free yes. paper, archival boxes. And I started every night transcribing and inventorying and organizing. And I did this all the time while working, you know. Whoa. And um, I I then, to make the story brief, I I took my, uh, my projected book to a couple of, uh, well, to one main, the first publisher I went to said they wanted it at a, a convention. That was Louisiana State. And I gave them uh, a copy of what I said was volume one and the reviews came back extraordinarily positive, but LSU didn't know what to do with it because they're saying to themselves, who's Hubert Harrison and who's this guy? Uh Who's Perry? And uh, so we we went through that song and dance for about 15 years, but I was determined that I thought Harrison Uh merited two volumes. And finally, I wound up taking it up to Columbia. I broke the contract with LSU, and uh, I agreed to a contract with Columbia. We also placed... Hubert Harrison papers at Columbia and uh, we, uh, the books were going to be published, the two-volume biography published by Columbia and the uh, Harrison's papers. And there was also an agreement they would make available online a good portion of his papers for those who could just access them for free online. And that was done within the last oh. two years, the online placement. So let me step back for a second and just give some information mm-hmm. to listeners and then we can go on. The two books in the the Hubert Harrison biography that I've just completed is two volumes. It is, I believe, the first multi-volume, full-life biography of an Afro-Caribbean and only the fourth full-life, uh, multi-volume biography of an African-American after those of Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Langston Hughes. Hubert Harrison is a giant of black history, Afro-Caribbean history, intellectual history, black journalism, radical history, all these areas. And um, so those two books are now out and available, and listeners can get them for 20% discount from Columbia University Press. You can go online and use the code CUP20 which stands for Columbia University Press and you can get them for 20% off but sometimes there's been problems as you probably know sometimes there's problems getting things shipped from the US directly yes. to the Virgin Islands and yes. but they're also available in ebook form which makes it nice and easy you know you can just order yes. it one day and get it the same day and yes. uh, people might want to consider that and they can still use the twenty percent discount, so you can get the books, or uh, or you can get the online versions. The also Harrison's um, uh, portion thirteen hundred items from his papers are online for free yeah,
0: totally. at
1: Columbia University Rare Book and Manuscript Library. Included in those thirteen hundred papers are Hubert Harrison's diary, which I mentioned earlier, and wow. uh, so there's a whole wealth. Of materials, and I really hope it, it's it's my wish, my deepest wish, that people in the in the Virgin Islands really catch hold of this and get it. You know, if they can get it themselves, please do. But also get it into the public libraries, the high school library, the college, university. Get it so people can have access to him. And he's such an uh, an amazing figure and one that I believe. Virgin Islanders and Crucians should be So proud of and, and can Learn so much from him it, it, It's always been my hope and I, It's my assumption, I think I'm right on this That he is just going to grow In importance over the remainder yeah. of this century and the next century I also did yeah. a Hubert Harrison reader yes. uh, About mm-hmm. 19, yeah.
0: Let me, let me interrupt you a minute Before you go any further because I've been holding us back. Let's go back to the uh, Discount code Let's make sure that people okay. understand the code of the C-U-P with the letters, right. with the numbers, two zero. 0 That's what I want to clarify. Correct. Okay. And mm-hmm. C-U-P
1: stands for Columbia University Press. That's how they can remember it. C-U-P, C-U-P 20. All right. So I also did the Hubert Harrison Reader, and that book – has uh, got about 153 articles by Hubert Harrison, including one of one which I'm going to talk about later. But people would I think be fascinated by. It's entitled The Virgin Islands: A Colonial Problem, and he wrote mm-hmm. it in 1923 for the Nation magazine. They were putting together a publication, and they refused to publish it. The, the general thinking was it was too radical. And it didn't get published Mm. uh, publicly, I don't think, until I published it. You know, it was in my book in 2001. Mm. Um, But that article, I can't recommend highly enough for people because it touches on issues which I think, from what I understand, are still relevant to islanders today. You know, and it's got to do with a lot about how the U.S. took over the islands how they implemented yes. the naval regime, uh, what happened to landed pro- you know, property and ownership and race relations yes. and sexual relations. You know, it, it's very deep and very interesting. Um, and because Jeff, he was constantly in touch, he was in touch with Virgin Islands, even though he was ever, never able to return after he came to New York in 1900, although he never yes. was able to go back. He was very much in touch. He was very good friends with D. Hamilton Jackson, Rothschild Francis, some of the big names from that era. And he also from Caribbean activists in New York, because there was a solid core of Virgin Islanders in and around the Virgin Island Congressional Council, which Harrison co-founded with Ashley Totten and some other people. There was a core of people who were very active. Um, And I'll get into that in a second. And then I did one other book on Harrison. I reprinted his book, When Africa Awakes, the inside story of the stirrings and strivings of the new Negro in the Western world. And that book uh, Harrison wrote in 1920. I had it republished with lots of notes by me and introduction, two introductions um, for Diasporic Africa Press uh, in 2015. That's how you can get that book. This is uh, all information on all of this is available online at my webpage, which is net. There's free audios, there's free videos, there's free articles, there's information on ordering if you want, discounts that are available, you know, if I have that information. Um and uh, on that book I just mentioned, the inside story of the stirrings and strivings of the new Negro, I, I just got to point out here now, and we'll talk about this more when we get into volume two. But when Harrison founded uh, the Liberty League and the Voice in 1917 in New York, they were the first organization and the first newspaper of the militant new Negro movement, and that was eight years before Alain Locke. Elaine Locke is famous for authoring a book in 1925, The New Negro, and uh, Harrison uh, founded a, a newspaper in 1917, that, you know, dedicated to the New Negro as a part of the New Negro movement. In 1919, he edited a newspaper entitled The, the New Negro, and in 1920, he became principal editor of Marcus Garvey's Negro World, which was considered one of the yeah. leading for the leading publication of the New Negro Movement. And in, um, it, you know, in going over all this, in, in, when, in when Africa Awakes, Harrison's hundred and, uh, uh, no, his 53 articles there are on um, the New Negro. This is all in 1920. And so he's prolific. And a lot of historians ignore this or omit it. uh, Or they treat the New Negro movement as a literary movement. But for Harrison and the work he did, the New Negro movement, the militant New Negro movement was literary, but it was also incredibly political. It was race conscious. It was class conscious. It it preached, you know, defense of uh, all the basic rights, demanded equality, uh, advocated armed self-defense in the face of attack. You know, just incredible. And uh, Harrison would also speak on the street corners and all of this. So, um, so that's that's getting that. Let's see if there was any other little thing I wanted to mention. Um, the um, no, that, that's what I wanted to make sure I mentioned in the beginning because we were talking about how I got to Harrison. So that that's okay. how I, I I got to Harrison and. Uh, okay. Once I started on it, I you know I realized how important he was, and I can't stress enough again, particularly to uh, Virgin Islanders, how much I. It seems to me he should be uh, such an important part of the history that people taught, are taught, and, ta- and talk about and discuss, etc. You
0: know. Chair, let me just mention something. Today is the first day of Virgin Islands History Month. So it's important yes, for teachers. Yes, I know. I just want our audience to know that, to be reminded of that. If you don't, you don't have to be a virgin islander. But if you have contact or relationships with virgin islands, get this information. Dr. Jeffrey Perry has worked his butt off to bring all this information to us. Let's make sure we use it. The discount is there. Go ahead and use it. Make sure that all the books are in all the libraries and also in in the schools. So with that, Jeff, go right ahead.
1: Good. And these books have been written, as I said, I'm old now, but they're written for current and future generations. And there is so much in them that people can draw from and learn from and discuss. If somebody's interested in black journalism, You can read about his his work with these first publications of the New Negro Movement, or how he transforms Marcus Garvey's Negro World into the leading black publication in the world. It's extraordinary. Or all these um, all these articles he writes for such a wide array of newspapers and magazines. If you're interested in soapbox oratory, he's the pioneering soapbox orator, and he's followed by a philip Randolph and chandler owen and marcus garvey and later malcolm x speaking on the street corners right if if you're interested in politics he's involved he's the leading black activist in the socialist party until he leaves them over white supremacy but he's also involved with other movements and groups you know uh, he he he'll work with the single tax movement and the free thought movement and uh the, uh, 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 workers, wor- the Workers' Party and the Communist Party and the, with the Garveyites, he'll work with, the, uh, with Opportunity. <laughs> you know, he works with everybody, although he oftentimes develops mm. criticisms, too, which he articulates very forthrightly. Um, and um, so there's just so much about Hubert Harrison. People can pick themes that they may be interested in, and there's yeah. a story there that can be drawn from Hubert Harrison. Um, now, there's a couple ways we could go, and I, I want to see what you think. One thing is I could go through briefly um, the outline. Since we did so much in last uh, the last presentation, we covered most of Volume 1, I can go through mm-hmm. just the title heads of the chapters. There are 20 chapters in Volume 2 just so people get a feel of what's going to be discussed, what is discussed in the book. And then I could go on. I went through the book. Earlier today, and I pulled out or I reprinted uh, pages in which Virgin Islanders were mentioned because I thought that might be of interest to your listening audience. You know, Mm -hmm. if um, you know if it's meetings of the Virgin Island Congressional Council or or this or that, or Harrison helping hosting the meeting when Jackson comes to New York in uh, in 1915, where they raise money to help set up the press. You know, for. Jackson's paper back home, you know, it's things people might not be familiar with. So, um, uh, you want? Would you like me to go in that order, or do you have any other thoughts? No, no, by that order, that's fine. Great, perfect. Okay, okay, Okay. correct. So, the, the the second volume, again, the struggle, Hubert Harrison, the struggle for equality, 1918 to 1927. It's the last nine and a half years of his life. He dies very young from an appendicitis-related condition in Bellevue Hospital in New York. And the last uh, – this second volume has 20 chapters. It's a big book, right? And it's got hundreds of pages of notes. Oh, and this is something I wanted to mention to the listeners.
0: The notes,
1: wherever possible, I have online links to the source. So if I'm citing a book that's available online – you can go and read the exact quotation. Or if I'm citing a a quote from his diary, you can link and go right to his diary. Or if he's doing Mm. a book review of a book from 1922 or such, and it's available online at the Hathi Trust or the Internet Archives, permanent sources, you can click on the link and go right to the book he's reviewing so you can read what he says, you can look at the book, make your own judgment, you know? Uh, so I tried to make this this volume a real tool, as I said, for people, for current and future generations, and particularly for younger people also, so they can really learn to appreciate Harrison. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I just can't say how important I think he, he should be. <laughs> and I think he is increasingly to Virgin Islanders. But here's how the... Um, the, the volume two has four sections. The first is part one, New Negro Movement Editor and Activist. And chapter one concerns his return to Harlem after uh, hosting the Liberty Congress with William Monroe Trotter, which was the main Black protest effort during World War One. Over a hundred people they pulled together, men and women in Washington D.C. to protest Woodrow Wilson leading the U.S. into war under the slogan, um, make the world safe for democracy. When Harrison founded his Liberty League, he he said, let's make the South safe for democracy. And uh, the the Liberty Congress demanded enforcement of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment and to federal uh, lynching legislation. So it's a very uh, militant Congress. And uh, groups like the NAACP tried to, undermined that effort. The NAACP was led by Joe E. Spingarn and Spingarn at that time was a head of the NAACP but he was also an officer in military intelligence and um, he tried to talk to Trotter, talk Trotter into calling it off. Trotter wouldn't. Spingarn didn't even waste time trying to talk to Harrison because he knew he wouldn't get any place. Uh, yeah. that, regarding that also, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a close friend of Spingarn, Um, wrote a letter along the lines of what Spingon was advocating. His letter in the crisis, or his editorial, was called "Close Ranks, and he said, while this war lasts, let us forget our special grievances and close ranks behind Woodrow Wilson's effort. Harrison took him to task in his own paper, The Voice, and says, because everybody knew what special grievances were, lynching, segregation, disfranchisement. And Harrison says, look, we can disagree on the war, but you don't have to take it there. And he criticized Du Bois publicly. Du Bois would never speak to Harrison publicly or in any other way, really, for the remainder of his life. And uh, two other things that are interesting for a listening audience to know is while Spingarn was trying to undermine the Liberty Congress, and while Du Bois wrote that editorial, Spingarn, the head of the NAACP, was also a military, uh, a major in military intelligence. That's that branch of the U.S. That, that branch of the U.S. government that monitors the black and the radical community. And in that same period, as he wrote the editorial, Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, put in an application for a captaincy in military intelligence. And most people don't know that history. Du Bois didn't get it. but uh, And later, many years later, his the chronicler of his life, Herbert Apdecker, I wrote that years later, Du Bois acknowledged the correctness of his critics in that period. And the main critic, of course, was Harrison. So chapter one concerns Harrison's return from the Liberty Congress. He's under super, uh, he's under, um, he's being monitored by the government now. You know, he's a big leading radical, a national radical, and he comes back to New York. He has no job. He's got four children. He'll have a fifth uh, child with his wife in 1920, you know. And he's got to make a living. So he, what he decides to do is try to resurrect the voice and start speaking, public speaking, and continues to write. But it's a very difficult period for him. And um, that, that's the first chapter, and that's from July to December 1918. Chapter two, he tries to extend his political activities to Washington and Virginia. And uh, a particular note in this is he's down there stirring up crowds with his speech his oratory in Washington in the early part of 1919 and later that year a lot of the major city well cities like Washington and Chicago would have major fightbacks after racist attacks and uh, Mm. a lot of the government documents said Harrison and people like him had stirred kind had raised the consciousness of the people considerably and uh it's a very interesting chapter, and I also get into how Harrison is being monitored in that period. Um, chapter three deals with his editing of the publication The New Negro and uh, his major articles and editorials, and um, including one, it's, um, uh, the, uh, one of his uh, articles on The New Negro Radicalism, which um, talks about the radicalism that's emerging in the Garvey movement. Now, one thing I want to mention, because people may not be familiar with this, and I I think I spoke about it last time, but when Harrison founds his Liberty League in 1917, Marcus Garvey joins Hubert Harrison's Liberty League. For those familiar with Marcus Garvey, he really doesn't join anyone else's organization, but he was so impressed by Harrison that he joined Harrison's Liberty League. And in the book, I describe how Harrison, in my first volume in particular, and then again in the second volume, was the major radical influence amongst black radical activists, major radical influence on the class radicals such as A. Philip Randolph and W.A. Domingo and uh, on the race radicals. uh, uh, Oh, and Chandler Owen and on the race radicals such as Marcus Garvey, who's a major radical influence on Garvey. And if people question this or, you know, don't know how accurate the assessment is, I can assure you we have lots of documentation in both Volume 1 and Volume 2, writings from contemporaries, examples and things like this uh, to back up what's being said. Um, Then Chapter 4 gets very interesting, and it's um, uh, it's entitled, and it's on a new section that deals with um, the whole Negro world. And it talks about how Harris, Harrison reshapes the Negro world. And what happens, very briefly, is in December 1919, I mean, as much more that happens, which I describe and discuss. And 1919 is a very volatile year, but... Um, Hubert Harrison is approached by Marcus Garvey in December 1919 and asked if he would head a college, a Negro college that Garvey wants to start. And Harrison says, let me think about it. And then they arrange to meet a week later. And Harrison goes up to the offices of the Negro world. And what Garvey really had in mind is what he put forth to Harrison. He wants Harrison to become the editor, become an editor of the Negro world. Uh, And Harrison actually becomes the principal editor within a matter of weeks. And uh, he's really the one who reshapes that publication and, um, uh, you know, just uh, turns it into the preeminent international black publication of that period. And uh, Harrison in his diary describes all the changes he made from the existing Negro world into what he did. He, you know, he cuts down the headlines. He um, has authors sign their articles. He tries to bring news, real news in rather than just reprints, especially reprints from the white press. He starts poetry for the people and book review sections and things like that. And uh, so that, that's that's a very important chapter. Uh, how he starts to reshape the Negro world, and he documents, and again, it's, this comes from his diary. So for many, this is the first time people will be learning about Harrison's central role in the Negro world. For instance, the historian Tony Martin wrote a wonderful book, Literary Garveyism, which he talks about how the Negro world of Marcus Garvey, the paper, was a a wonderful um, literary, uh, political uh, publication, but it was also incredibly literary. But he didn't know that Harrison was the editor in the period he's describing. And this just adds to the analysis that uh, Martin made. Um, I also discuss in Chapter 5 the debate with the emancipator. The emancipator was a, a group of black socialists, including... Uh, Chandler Owen, WA uh, a. Domingo, A. Philip Randolph, and others. Uh, and they were getting into a debate. Uh, and Harrison defends the movement of Garvey because it's preaching, he says, to the masses what they, what they were eager to hear, which was racial racial consciousness, racial solidarity, that message whereas the socialists were not. And it's a very interesting debate, and we talk about that at some length in the book. In Chapter 6, I go on describing lots of uh, Harrison's book reviews, and I can't stress enough the importance of his book reviews. He does a tremendous uh, couple of book reviews on um, uh, an author named Lothrop Stoddard's The Rising Tide of Color, it was the most popular book in the country in certain circles, um, and, and because Stoddard was a warning about the dangers to the white race, the threats to the white race. And Harrison points out these are some things I had mentioned, I had written about as early as 19, uh, 1915. But it also talks, it, the, the reviews show Harrison's internationalism. He writes about internationalism, about leadership, And he also starts the West Indian news notes section in the Negro world. In Chapter 7, we discuss the UNIA convention of 1920, uh, when Harrison is being promoted for a high position in the UNIA. And he pulls out, he says, no, I'm not going to have this. And he decides he's going to break from Garvey. And in that um, chapter, he elaborates, again, mostly from his diary, his reasons for distancing himself from Marcus Garvey. And people will be fascinated to read that. Even people who are, you know, very staunch adherents of Marcus Garvey, I think will be very interested to hear what Harrison's thoughts were on this.
0: Um, you there? Jim, yes. before, you go, before you go any yes. further, let's take the opportunity right now to refresh people's minds about how they can get the discount on the books. Go ahead with that, please. Thank you
1: very much. You can get the books from Columbia University Press, and the discount code is CUP20. stands for Columbia University Press 20. CUP20. And the two books are, the first volume is Hubert Harrison, The Voice of Harlem Radicalism, 1883 to 1918, 1883, the year he's born, on a state Concordia. And the second volume is Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for Equality, 1918 to 1927, the year he dies. And they're from Columbia University Press, and the code is CUP20, and you get 20% discount off. And again, so important, if you can get them, if there's any problem they give you with shipping or something, you can get the electronic version. But also, please try and get them in your public libraries, high school libraries even, if they're there for those, you know, students who really want to, you know, look into something interesting and new and deep, you know, maybe they can have access to this stuff and then college and university libraries. Whatever people can do, be, I think, would be great for current and future generations. I'm going to go on, I'm going to go more quickly Is that okay? Let me see what we got
0: Because I I do want to get
1: into mentioning Yeah, I'm going to just go quickly on some of these chapters Chapter 8 is a lot more On his Negro World articles Editorials and reviews Including writings on the KKK And his book reviews And writings on major literary figures Of the period Chapter 9, more Negro World writings and reviews uh, From January to April 1921 including very interesting articles on Lincoln and liberty. And the articles on Lincoln are very important because they proceed in in their basic uh, theses, powerful books written years later by Lerone Bennett Jr. and Eric Foner on Lincoln, I think, anyway. And um, Chapter 10 uh, concerns political developments and Negro world writings, and it's how there starts to be a lot of opposition to Garvey Um, amongst the black activists and others and Harrison also puts forth some amazingly important editorials such as Wanted Wanted a Colored International and he also does a, a brilliant book review of the play The Emperor Jones which had Charles Gilpin in the lead he was the leading black actor of the day a few years later paul robeson would play the lead in that play and uh o'neill was so impressed he writes this fascinating letter to harrison about what an extraordinary review it was and says harrison will have a role in any theater he has anything to do with and of course o'neill was a big uh, major award winner in the 1930s in the literary field um Uh, Chapter 11, Negro World and Other Writings, and uh, he starts hitting on themes like democracy, which is a theme we'll
0: continue to
1: come back to. Um, Chapter 12 deals with Garvey's arrest. Uh, Garvey's arrested. Uh, Ultimately, it becomes uh, charges of mail fraud, but it's it's much more complicated than that. And I go through a lot of uh, the discussion on that and Harrison's statement and statements from other people like Cyril Briggs. Uh, who's editor of Crusader, who's from Nevis, Saint Kitts, and others. Chapter 13: Harrison's still looking for work, and he begins uh, from he begins in 1922 a four-year period of being a lecturer to the New York City Board of Education in, at night classes on literary lights of uh, yesterday and today and trends of the times, and I believe that makes him the first regular a black uh, educator for the New York City Board of Education, yet another first. It's also the period when Harrison uh, is putting in for and obtains his citizenship, and I'll get into that later because that's a whole question that people, even today, I don't think realize what the situation was regarding citizenship status for Crucians and Virgin Islanders. Chapter 14 includes Harrison's writing on the KKK, and that fascinating article on the Virgin Islands, as well as the conviction of Marcus Garvey. Teen Harrison begins a series of for six months of, edit, of uh, essays in the Boston Chronicle, a Black Weekly, um, which I have all of them included in the book, uh, a Hubert Harrison reader, but I discuss them all in volume two. And um, he does other work. He's continuing work with the Board of Education. And he's also... As they are assembling, Alain Locke, the publication which would become Alain Locke's New Negro, uh, which would come out in 1925, in the early manuscript draft, Harrison uh, a Harrison article on the White World and the and the War, the White White Man's War, I forget what the full the accurate title was written uh, during the war, uh, was included in the early batch, and then some somehow well uh, between Locke. And a fellow named Charles Kellogg, who was put, hel- helping to put together the paper, European-American, it gets elided. It gets taken out of the final drafts. And um, one historian who's familiar with the thing said it was because Harrison's article was considered too radical. Um, but it's uh, – so, again, he, although but, – but what's interesting is, so for years, whenever people spoke about the New Negro, They talk about Alain Locke, and they wouldn't speak about Hubert Harrison at all for years. But within the last couple of years, now recognition is coming of Hubert Harrison's importance. And if you go to the African-American Museum in Washington, D.C., the big new museum, they have a wall entitled New Negro, and they have two uh, people on that wall. You know, they're sculpted images of them. One is Alain Leroy Locke, and one is Hubert Harrison. So people will be interested in that. Crucian's up there on that wall, too. Um, Chapter 16 concerns Harrison's travels to the Midwest and uh, his uh, Midwest tour and uh, continued Board of Education work and and things he's doing with Amy Ashwood Garvey, including writing a draft manuscript with her on the rise and fall of Marcus Garvey. Uh, Several drafts of this uh, were worked on. Um, and um, he also helps support a woman named Augusta Savage, who's the leading black sculptress of the period. Uh, as she's seeking funding, she she had denied, been denied opportunities to go to, to Europe for scholarship, uh, for scholarships she had won and things like this. And he gets behind her and tries to have other people help her. Chapter seventeen. Uh, talks about Harrison's continued work with the Board of Education, his long article on the Virgin Islands, and uh, the NYU. um, He he starts speaking at colleges as a guest lecturer. NYU and Columbia were the main ones. Chapter 18 uh, concerns uh, his work with the uh, Institute for Social Study and the Urban League in Harlem and his involvement with a thing called the Lafayette Theater Strike. Chapter 19 He's writing some pieces for the Pittsburgh Courier, and he starts a new publication entitled The Embryo of the Voice of the Negro, and then The Voice of the Negro in early 1927. And Chapter 20 concerns his last months and deaths. And Chapter 21 is an epilogue which with eulogies from many, many people. So there we are up to that point. Now, if we want to take a little break, and I'll mention again the code, and then we'll go to the mention of some...
0: Let's okay. go ahead and remind our listeners to note of our call-in number. That number is 515-605-9812. I repeat that. Keep that number nearby because whenever we're on the air, that number will bring you to our guest or even to me, whoever you want to address with a question or a comment, so make a note of that question of that number. The number is five one five six zero five nine eight one two. Jeff, anything else we get uh, No,
1: I just I just because I thought it would be of interest to to people. I went through earlier today volume two uh-huh. and I. Do you have a call? Do you have a call in? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I went through volume two and tried to pick out where there was some mention of Virgin Island as a crucial. It's a very big book, as I said. So I'm just going to yes. read from pages and people may find some, some little anecdote here that's of interest.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: uh, when Harrison, uh, is putting in for, uh, he's being, he faces the draft around the period of world war one. Uh, and and before – like other Negroes who were born in St. Croix – Negroes is in quotes – who were born in St. Croix before the Woodrow Wilson signed January 16, 1917, session of the Virgin Islands from Denmark to the United States, his citizenship yes. – status, yes, in the United States was not clear. As historian William W. Boyer writes, citizenship uh, – for Crucian, citizenship in the United States um, – had citizenship in the United States, but not citizenship of the United States. And Harrison and others had no idea what that meant.
0: Oh.
1: Um, yeah, in the Virgin Islands, here's another chapter later on, in the Virgin Islands um, uh, I- after the U.S. takes over it's a naval administration and this was new, you know, because usually that may be done if you're occupying a country, but this was supposedly a peacefully acquired, uh, you know, you know, country coming, you know, becoming uh, in, under the auspices of the U.S. Um, and Chip, um, Let
0: me ask you, excuse me, Jeff. Yeah. One thing I want to add, when the Navy came to govern the, the, the island at the time, there were, <laughs> I hate to say this, but there were KKK so oh. I saw people here in the islands, too, and that made it difficult,
1: very difficult. Well, yeah, well, Harrison talks about when, when the Navy comes in, it's like he, he, he says it's like Southernism uh, runs riot. And he talks yes. about the aggressions on the people, on the women, on the spread of venereal disease. It's a whole history I'm not sure people know very much about or are taught about. And Harrison's writing first hand on this stuff, but I'm going to get to that in a second. Here, just going on with some of these little excerpts. In 1915, sure, when D. Hamilton Jackson passes through New York, um, uh, Harrison chaired the founding meeting of the Danish West Indies Committee on 100, West 138th Street. And Jackson was on his way to Denmark to present concerns of the Danish Islanders to the King and Parliament about the treatment. Um, of the island, while well, still under Danish rule, and the Danish West Indian Company um, Congress uh, Committee, excuse the Danish West Indian Committee, came together to support Jackson's efforts. At the meeting, other speakers included activist Ashley Totten, James A. Glasgow, Carl Hendricks, Victor Murphy, and Sylvani e. Smith. Now, people I know, there's family members of some of these people because I've spoken to some of them over the years when I've talked and. And written, and the DWIC created a Jackson Fund, and committees of correspondence proposed to purchase a newspaper plant and publish a newspaper in St. Croix to quote, express the viewpoint of the Negro population there and to offer a mutual improvement society to offer educational assistance and services to young people as well as the Danish language classes. So that's up here in New York in support of efforts of Jackson and others down in St. Croix. Um, In October 1919, the New Negro discussed how in St. Thomas, the uh, black working people had elected Rothschild Francis to send him to Washington as their spokesman, and he appeared before a Senate committee, uh, and Harrison discusses this. Other coverage from the period indicates that Francis' efforts was supported by the Virgin Islands Protective League in New York City, which was organized by its president, Ashley Totten, and and Elizabeth Hendrickson. Um, Though the 1920 census would show only 1,431 Virgin Islanders in all New York State, there was a core of outstanding activists in and around the VIPL, which, served to, uh, which aimed to serve as a watchdog for the islands. Um, again, these are excerpts from certain chapters. Um, sure. When, now moving on. Uh, Harrison then, in one of his articles in The Negro World, emphasized if the Negroes in the – again, Negroes is the word that's being used in that period. If Negroes in the North had intelligently organized their votes They would be able to now call the hand of the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, who had been waging brutal war against the liberties and properties of our brothers in, in Black Haiti and Santo Domingo, and had given to the Virgin Islands the awful anomaly of Danish laws in American territory and sexual and physical outrage perpetrated by the Marines. Uh, And Josephus Daniels was the person in charge From the U.S. of the Virgin Islands Um, uh, Let me you a couple more Uh, When Harrison puts in for his citizenship uh, Well, I, I don't have the exact quote I'm looking for right now But interesting, when Harrison gets citizenship in 1922 uh, because he never he never knew what his status was, and it was years before he could get citizenship in the U.S. Um, um, he finally gets it in 1822, and on his citizenship papers, he's listed as, quote, white. Now, for those familiar with Harrison, if you look at any of the pictures on any of my books, he's very dark-skinned, and um, yes. that, it prompted J.A. Rogers to make some sarcastic comment about the uh, omnipotence of the u s government officials I think they know mm. everything and assume that anybody coming from the Virgin Islands applying for citizenship would be white, you know so um, then i I have um about four pages of five pages of detailed comments on the um the that article of virgin Island, the colonial problem, but I want to save that if we have enough time for later. Of course, there's a couple of other things I want to mention and see where we stand because that'll take a bit of time. Uh, uh okay. In 24, Harrison became a founder and executive committee member of the Virgin Islands Committee, it was head, uh, headquartered at 70th Avenue. Um, oh, right, I think I mentioned, uh, and uh, and led by uh, Rothschild Polly Francis. Um, and uh, Others involved were Elizabeth Hendrickson uh, and uh, Elizabeth Hendrickson, and uh, I'm trying to think who else. And also, uh, Casper Holstein of the Virgin Island Congressional Committee was involved. Casper Holstein from Virgin Islands. Um, The the Virgin Island Congressional Committee uh, had a number of activists, which I, I think I skipped over their names. But um, people will find many names like that throughout the book that I think will be of great interest um, to the listening audience. Um, and I can go look for them in a second if you'd like. But um, do we have any questions, any breaks,
0: anything you yeah, want to I ask? I have no One thing I wanted to add, but uh, it slipped my mind. I'll come back to it in a while. Go ahead. Okay, well, then I'm going to go get into
1: and read some excerpts from this longer article on the Virgin Islands, a colonial problem, which I think might offer some very new and interesting history. Um, Let me find it. I'm almost there. Let's see. Okay, The Virgin Islands, A Colonial Problem. It was written on October 31st, 1923. Uh,
0: the article
1: was submitted to the Nation magazine, but they chose not to use it. The editor at the time was Ernest Groening. What's interesting is Groening later became uh, – uh, an official overseeing affairs in, in, the, in the Virgin Islands in 1934. But Harrison yeah. began by emphasizing that it is hardly possible to tell the story of the Virgin Islands without mentioning that the population is 93% Negro. The islands of St. Croix, St. Thomas, and St. John are part of a far flung colonial empire, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the assumption of sovereignty over darker peoples carries an obligation to know something of them. And unfortunately, most Americans know nothing. Um, the lands, the lands, however, were not part of the United States, whereas the Virgin Islands were peaceably purchased, right? The Virgin Islands are peaceably purchased, yet they're run by the, the military. The Navy is overseeing affairs, which Harrison says is a great anom- anomaly uh, that the United States would have the military oversee a, a country that they didn't acquire by military means. Um, in reviewing the history of U.S. acquisition of the islands, Harrison stressed that the foundation reasons for U.S. interest was their geographic position and consequent strategic importance. And he goes way back, you know, uh, into the 1870s and uh, even the early history and the ships going into St. John and how it was the most widely. Uh, visited port for a period of time Uh, and um, but then he goes on to a description of the uh, black people of the Virgin Islands are almost entirely of African extraction and and he then described how the social characteristic of the Negro population of the Virgin Islands are only to be adequately understood and appreciated By reference to similar characteristics to be found in the West African Negroes, from among whom the slaves for the Danish West Indies were mainly drawn, the locale extending from the upper Gold Coast to the southeastern limits of Nigeria. Their customs are rooted in the African communal system, and the planters of the Danish islands left these inherited customs generally undisturbed. Up until 20 years earlier, the African, Africa-based communal extensions had enabled African laborers to survive under Danish rules. There were certain well-defined economic limits to the prosperity of the uh, Islanders, but they, they were able to survive adequately. Um, when the U.S. comes in, in the period the United States first expressed interest in the islands. West Indian sugar industry was under a serious attack, but I, I want to skip ahead. Uh, I want to go here to the Virgin Islands. It goes, the main source of the pressure around 1917, when the U.S. finally acquires uh, the Virgin Islands, was, uh, was economic rather than bureaucratic. And in the Virgin Islands, they had developed a response, a definite labor movement with clear-cut radical aims headed by Harrison's boyhood friend, D. Hamilton Jackson. Harrison and Jackson were friends all the way back and Harrison studied under Wilfred Jackson, who's Harrison's father and was considered the finest teacher on St. Croix, you know, at that time. Um, there is power sought in to control. Those in power sought to control this labor movement and Harrison emphasized It was the rise in potency of this labor movement, as expressed mainly in the St. Croix Labor Union, which determined the planter elements in the islands to revive and support the movement for transfer of Virgin Islands to the United States. In the days before the union, the regular wage of an agricultural worker was 20 cents a day. By organizing the workers, the union was soon able to pull up wages to 50 cents, 75 cents, And finally, a dollar a day. Nor was this all. These black Danish workers began to give evidence of a social vision far in advance of that which was being exhibited by white workers in the U.S. They organized a bank of their own, secured a printing press, published a newspaper, and brought up seven of the estates on which they had formerly been employed, uh, bought up. It became evident that they meant to try... Conclusions with, uh, with, meant to try conclusions with the capitalists of their own ground. Against such organized economic cooperation, the planters could not hope to compete successfully. They realized that transfer to the U.S., in which racial subordination was most effectively organized and entrenched in the political economic structure of the actual government, would redress the balance and restore their efforts to control over wages and working conditions. This is Harrison writing this, right? The planters' propaganda for the sale happened to coincide with the urgent strategic needs of the U.S. and the financial embarrassments of the Danish colonial rule. Um, He goes, uh, during uh, the Naval Secretary Edwin Denby in his first two sentences – oh, no – he explained he was strictly a military authority. The islanders continued to protest against the hitherto unheard of theory of political serfdom, which puts the government of an American colony into the hands of the Navy Department. This is, again, it's all Harrison. While this approach might be used for a conquered territory prior to the setting up of civil government, Virgin Islanders failed to find any precedent in the history and laws of the U.S. or those of any other English-speaking country for the present arrangement which turns over the civil rights of a free people whose territory has been peacefully acquired by treaty and purchase, to the by no means tender mercies of the same Navy Department which had already achieved such an unsavory reputation in Haiti and
0: insist
1: that the dignity, self-respect, and good faith of the U.S. are involved until such time as the government of the Virgin Islands shall be put under appropriate departments of the State. Their objections to the naval regime went deeper than the question of political form because it is a notorious fact in every seaport of the world that the behavior of the U.S. seamen, when on shore, is more unruly than that of seamen of any other great nation. This is especially so when they have to deal with colored inhabitants. And he cites examples from Jamaica. But then he goes on, uh, and he also points out these things were not known in the U.S., but elsewhere in the world, people know about them. Um, and, and he comments uh, also, this is his insights uh, on growing up in St. Craig. He goes, under Danish control, there were superior and inferior people on the island, but no instance were they made so by the color of their skin the doctrine of chromatic inferiors and superiors has been violently thrust upon the islanders by the personnel of the U.S. Naval Administration. Uh, he also says, uh, it, the naval, it was, uh, it was such a thinking, it was easy for naval administration to believe that all white people are foreordained to enjoy the prerogatives of rulership. In the very first week of the American occupation, Marines and sailors began to assault citizens and shoot up the town. Um, one case offered a bird's eye view of what marine brutality meant to the Virgin Islanders. Harrison quoted from a St. Thomas newspaper of April 10, 1921, re- reviewing what had happened earlier, when on the eve of the fourth anniversary of the U.S. occupation of the island, a gang of mar- Marines went on a rampage. rampage For several days, shooting at defenseless citizens indiscriminately, according to reports, the casualties uh, amounted to nearly a score of severely injured civilians and several who received minor injuries and a number of houses damaged by rifle fire. None of the marauders had yet been punished. Rape, a serious crime hitherto unknown uh, to the islands, began to appear with disturbing frequency. The offenders in every case were white. The number of illegitimate children was astonishing, and colored girls were insulted with impunity, as mar- Marines in many instances invaded the sanctity of respectable private homes. Such social quantity. so he goes on and on describing these things, and then he talks mm-hmm. about how later, Reginald Barrow and Rothschild Francis go We're about at a time end, right? Do you want to stop here or?
0: I'm just amazed about the police conditions in in United States, forefounded by what was done here in the Navy. Wow, it's amazing, it really is. Yeah, and most most people, I don't think know much of that history. Mm-hmm. You can correct me if I'm
1: wrong. So, so I think mm-hmm. we're, we're we're doing an important playing an important role to help bring that to people. But you can mm-hmm. read okay. it in Harrison and then I have. I have some footnotes that back up much of what he says. You know, I try and document good. what he's saying.
0: Good. Good. Yeah, it's all in your hands, Doc. Uh, uh, whatever you wish. Yeah.
1: No, I, that, I think that's fairly good for tonight for the listening audience. If we have no that's questions,
0: okay, um, and no uh, questions. But me. I want to
1: thank you at the end so much for hosting this mm. on Harrison. And thank you for helping to bring Hubert Harrison to the uh, Virgin Island
0: audience and beyond, and beyond. It's wonderful. You're you're welcome. You're welcome. My pleasure. I just want the audience to know that this record, this program today has been recorded and it will always be there on logtalk.com slash in the author's corner. Just go down as, to the appropriate, yeah. yes. So as Jeff, it's all... Yeah, as yes. was the
1: first one. The first one was a pretty good one, I thought, you know, and they might want to start
0: with that one, too. Yes, that's right, that's right. Well, Jeff, we want to thank you again, again and again. You helped get things <laughs> off to a good start for the Virgin Islands History Month. Now, let's hope we have some more going on during Virgin Islands History Month the in month, in month of March Jeff thanks again Ever so much I will give you a big
1: oh, Shout okay. out <laughs> and,
0: and, and doing. Again,
1: I want to mention one more time These two volumes On the Harrison biography The yes. first full length I believe it's the first full length Multi-volume biography Of an wow. Afro-Caribbean And only the fourth of an African-American Hubert Harrison wow. Is a giant and I, yes. I, it would just warm my heart if Virgin Island is a Christian, if people just took him to their heart and, and built off his life yes. and work. because he started from the most modest of beginnings on a plantation, yes. you know, in a, a state Concordia. Yes. And then he lives yes. in the watergut section of Christianstead. I mean, it's remarkable the, heights, the intellectual heights he achieved and the, yes. the contributions he made. He's an example for everyone.
0: and that, that, so I, I,
1: I, Obviously, I think he's
0: important. <laughs> <laughs> a huge, a huge role model for all of us. And Jeff, we kind of thank you for bringing that out. And again, for about the, the discount. Okay. One more time. Talk about the uh, discount. The discount
1: to get the two volume, get each volume from Columbia University Press. And the discount code is CUP20. Stands for Columbia University Press 20. The two volumes are Hubert Harrison, The Voice of Harlem Radicalism, 1883 to 1918. That's volume one. And Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for Equality, 1918 to 1927. And also, my webpage, www dot dot net has all kinds of free information on Hubert Harrison and other topics focusing on the struggle against white supremacy and uh, you know I write about a fellow named Theodore W Allen which people might be find of great interest my Video just hit one hundred sixty-six thousand yesterday on
0: Alan and mm-hmm. the invention
1: of white space. People like it, <laughs> and um, Jeff, uh, but there's Jeff, a wants lot to... of information, and you'll find the information again on how to get the, uh, the Harrison books in the discounts if you didn't get a chance to write it down. Now,
0: Jeff, do, uh, do does anybody have to uh, buy one copy, or could they buy both copies if they wish? No, they can
1: buy one copy. They can buy one, a friend can buy one, they can share them however they want to do it. There's no obligation in any way like that. And mm-hmm. I even have online, if you go to my webpage, I don't have the exact links now,
0: but I have okay. where
1: you can read first two chapters of each book. I have links to where you can read that so you can get a feel for the quality of uh, the research and the writing and who he was. I believe I even have online for free, uh, chapter from volume one on his Crucian roots which people will find fascinating because I go into <laughs> all his his family tree and I utilize I went to Denmark and DC and uh, oh, National Archives, archives in, in the US and uh, utilized the Afri- uh, St. Croix African roots projects extensively in the work of um, uh, George um, <laughs> help me George <laughs> I I uh, so yeah, the Saint Croix African Roots project i am getting old, mm-hmm. and um
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: so mm-hmm. it's just a tremendous amount of information and i think people will
0: uh appreciate it i hope yeah. i just want them to know also jeff i hyperlinked your the link to your website both places great as well the uh, The the Columbia University link So people could go on that Website Even though they may not have been here tonight If they listen to the recording And they want to get any information They have access to it Right here on this episode One more
1: thing at the end If you can, I would recommend A Columbia University Rare Book and Manuscript Library Digital Collections If you can link to that that's yes. where they have, I have it online, that's where they have over 1,300 Harrison articles or photos or whatever, you know, entries, and you might even want to make within that one specific link to Hubert Harrison's diary. People be
0: fascinated by it. Very good, Jeff. Thank you. You're eye opener for all of us. Okay. Thank you. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Great to kick off the start of the Virgin Islands History <coughs> Month. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jeff. Take care.
1: Thank you can, so much. Okay, I have,
0: another, I have a safe travel home. Take care. Yeah, Folks, you've heard it now. There you go. Starting off the there Virgin Health History Month, and there it is. Make sure you take part of it, if not for yourself, at least for your family and for your newer generation. So until next time, this is ATN Thank you for being with us on In the Author's Corner with ATN. So long for now. Take care, folks. One-on-one. One, get up. A-